Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host Tarang Gupta and our guest today is Samara Kohim, the Chief Investment Officer for BlackRock's ETF and Index business and a member of the firm's Global Executive Committee. She manages the teams responsible for delivering the market quality and investment integrity of BlackRock's 2700 plus index funds and ETFs. Samara first joined BlackRock in 1993 as an analyst. and rejoined the firm in 2015 after she was a managing director in the securities division of Goldman Sachs. Samara was named to Barron's 100 most influential women in finance last year. She earned a BS Econ in finance from the from the Wharton School and a BA in theater arts from the College of Arts and Sciences of the University of Pennsylvania. She also holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. Join us as we discuss what Samara's role as the CIO entails, how ETFs have evolved from their early days, the unique characteristics of BlackRock's ETFs, the increasing participation of retail investors in investment instruments, her outlook on managing personal and professional commitments, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Samara, how are you doing? Very nice to meet you. I'm good, thank you. Likewise, how's it back to be back on the campus? It's so awesome being back on campus and Tarang I'm so excited to be uh to be having this conversation in person. Um I uh I I mentioned to you I've done a number of podcasts but I've never like sat in the room but I was happy to be back visiting campus and and able to sit with you and walking down Loc- Locust Walk um especially I guess at the end of the year right before commencement I have a lot of uh, amazing memories and And I also have a lot of gratitude for for having been a student at Penn and uh, and what that meant for me in my in my life and my career. So it's great being here. Well, I'm glad you're happy about that, and I'm glad you mentioned that because my first question is, what is something you learned during undergrad at at Penn that st- stuck with you, you know, through the years? I learned at Penn um, the importance of really being in the driver's seat of your uh, the experience that you want to have, and and that. holds true in in so many places of of life and career I think but um but part of what attracted me to Penn is that I wanted to be a theater major and I was a theater major in the College of Arts and Sciences but I also had developed um an interest in math and an interest in economics and people thought I was crazy um pursuing both of those things that they were kind of incompatible but actually at Penn I felt um supported and almost uh, applauded for for having this uh you know um kind of breadth of interests and Penn let me do a dual degree here which was the BSc Econ and Finance as an undergrad at Wharton and a BA in Theater Arts at the College of Arts and Sciences and it's those two things together that I really think make me who I am today and I bring both of those things um to my work to my life and you know and as a parent now and also someone who advises a lot of people earlier in their careers it's my hope that you find the things that you're passionate about and weave them together into a career journey that is you know uniquely you and and pen taught me the power of that so before i ask my question about your career would you have been a like a in in theater maybe we'll look at in theater if you didn't go to financial services or is that something you felt at some point you had to make a decision and and just this more professional thing like one so that's an excellent question and i have contemplated that and i'll tell you the truth which i don't know that i've ever shared this on a podcast before but 
I, when I graduated from Penn, I had spent all of my summers working in regional theater companies. And I realized right before senior year, two things. Number one, I wasn't sure that's the life I wanted. It's a very nomadic life. And I don't, you know, some of, I just wasn't sure it was, it was going to be the, the sort of um, high energy life that, that, you know, I, I thought of and and student theater is kind of like, you know, being a student athlete is very different from going pro ball. And so I had these, you know, self-reflections happening uh, towards the end of my undergraduate career. And I wanted to be financially independent. And so I thought, let me see what my other degree can do. So really without knowing anything at all about the world of financial services, I sent out resumes and you know, got a job at uh, BlackRock actually, um, which was interesting because uh, you know, as we'll talk about, I then left BlackRock and came back to BlackRock. But so I worked at BlackRock and, um, and I, when I went to business school, I decided I wanted to go back to business school after four years at BlackRock to see if I could better integrate um, my, my interest in finance and the arts. But what I haven't shared before is that when I applied to business schools, I also applied to the Yale School of Drama. And I kind of thought to myself, let's see what the universe tells me. Maybe if I get into the Yale School of Drama, that's the path that I should take. So I applied to three business schools and the Yale School of Drama. Didn't get into the Yale School of Drama, which I'm sure I knew I wouldn't because I didn't meet their criteria. I hadn't worked at all in professional theater, um, but I did think about it. Um, but I I was um, fascinated by by finance and markets, and and I wanted to see what else what else was out there. But I mean, who knows? It's so interesting when you kind of look back on your life and the twists and turns. But but I did you know take a couple of, of second thoughts about about going into the arts. And at business school, I also thought maybe I wanted an an arts administration type job. Maybe I could combine those things. And I spent a lot of time researching arts administration jobs. And then actually, Goldman Sachs reached out to me while I was at business school. And it was part of a diversity recruiting initiative because they were trying to get more women onto the trading floor. And they said, well, you worked at this firm, BlackRock. You have a background in, you know, bond markets and fixed income, why didn't you apply to Goldman? And I was kind of looking at arts administration, but I went and visited the trading floor. And when I walked onto the trading floor, I felt a total sense of connection, the kind of high energy, very um, social collaborative environment of a trading floor is very much what it's like to be in the theater during tech week of a show. So in an interesting way, I found the right combination of those things for me without actually pursuing theater as an industry. You know what? This reminds me of this quote by Steve Jobs that looking back, the dots always connect. Exactly. You know, if you can be an artist looking back and connect the dots in in all sorts of interesting ways. And it's a and I always love asking people their stories because you come up with very rich stories when, when, you know, you hear all of those turning points and, and decision points in a person's, you know, life. Yeah, I know it's fascinating. Sometimes I think that, like, is destiny real? Like, is it sort of like predestined to happen or is more like our active choices somehow working out? I don't know. It's so, it's so interesting. But let's talk about what actually happened. So you, <laughs> you did your undergrad, you went to BlackRock, then you went to business school. What happened next? Uh, so I went to business school. I spent my uh, my summer associate year working on the trading floor at Goldman, got the job at Goldman, and spent the next 16, 16 years really uh, working at Goldman in the markets division, specifically in the fixed income division um, in uh, interest rate derivatives, in, in interest rate products, which was 
fascinating to me. I'm, you know, a, a markets junkie. I'm, you know, I loved uh, uh, macroeconomics and geopolitics and the impact of, of uh, geopolitics on, on markets and financing. And so I worked on the trading floor for years and I had a number of uh, big turning points over the course of my career. Um, but one of the biggest ones was the great financial crisis in, in 2008. So two things were going on with me at that time. Number one, I was uh, pregnant and I had my second child. My daughter, Eileen, was born October 10th, 2008. So, you know, for any market historian of the great financial crisis, you will realize that I was, you know, uh, basically almost about to give birth when I was called back to the trading floor on the Sunday that Lehman declared bankruptcy. And I remember thinking, like, I'm so pregnant. What do I wear on a Sunday, uh, you know, to be on the trading floor? And my husband said, Samara, nobody is going to be looking at you. Um, and, and he was correct. Uh, but so so I was I was having a child and then I was on maternity leave and watching all of these uh, events unfold in the world. And also importantly, watching and feeling the kind of vitriol in the world being expressed at uh, bankers. And that was and at the derivatives market. And I worked at a bank and I, you know, was a, a you know, career uh, derivatives market professional, inspired in part by a financial engineering class I had taken as an undergrad at Wharton. And I really believed that the work I did helped my clients and helped them hedge risks so that those atmospherics and, and the anger at banks um, was painful. And while I believed strongly that it was incorrect to blame the derivatives market for the financial crisis, that there were real improvements that could be made to markets, to market structure, to create more resilience and transparency. Um, and for me, that was probably, you know, the first time in my career I, I connected with the very deep sense of professional purpose and mission. And, and that was, you know, 2010, 11, as Dodd-Frank was being written and, you know, global uh, OTC market reforms were being agreed by world leaders. And that uh, kind of those, those you know, few years of transition and, and reflection in the industry and the markets really characterized, I would say, the, the next journey of my career, including making the decision to, to leave Goldman and go to BlackRock. So my natural follow-up to that is, what is BlackRock all about? Like, why did you decide to go back? Well, what BlackRock is about now uh, and what BlackRock is about was about the first time uh, are actually kind of similar. Our purpose is to, which I always start with our purpose because we're a big complex business now. Uh, when I started, we were a much smaller, more specialized business. We were um, uh, experts. We were fixed income portfolio management experts, specifically bringing uh, uh, risk management analytics to institutional investors and individual investors who hadn't had that before, who hadn't had that sort of access uh, to uh, mortgage-backed securities markets, which was a big part of BlackRock's expertise and value-add during the 90s. So much more specific then, and now we have, you know, all asset classes, equities, all types of uh, investment strategies, but at our heart, our purpose was then and still is to help more and more people experience financial well-being. And what attracted me to BlackRock as an undergraduate was this story of innovation. It was a BlackRock was founded in, in 88 by a group of uh, really Wall Street um, experts, financial engineers who understood mortgage-backed securities better than really anybody else in the world who said, we want to take this expertise 
and as opposed to apply it in the very transactional way that we do at a bank, bring it to investors and help them better manage their portfolios and create better financial outcomes. We're still doing that today, but we've been on a 35-year now journey of uh, financial uh, uh, innovation, which is really kind of what brings me here to this conversation with you, because I think our story is very much one of fintech um, and and how uh, technology and technology innovation creates better uh, access to, to investors, to markets and investment strategies in lots of different ways. So how how did your, like once you started BlackRock, how did that journey or transition lead you to current role that is a CIO of BlackRock's ETF and index investments? And what do you love about your current role? What is that that gets you excited when you wake up to go to office? So what gets me excited to wake up and go to the office, I will lead with that, um, is, you know, in uh, ETFs and index, I we every day are really relentless in our pursuit of better ways for more people to invest in the markets. And my job today has expanded, but it actually is the job that I came to BlackRock to do. So I was hired into the ETF business and to be totally candid, since I was a fixed income person, and this was really 2014 when I started the the conversation with BlackRock, I was Googling what is an ETF before my interview because bond market people, ETFs are equities. Like bond market people didn't really know what ETFs are. Now, ETFs are exchange traded funds. They are mutual funds that trade uh, as a single security in the stock market. And they are a huge access vehicle now for investors to trade bonds because we wrap lots of different types of bond strategies and portfolios into ETFs. But at that time, ETFs were much smaller in terms of their presence uh, in the bond market. So I was hired, um, and I remember saying to Mark Weedman, who was the the person who was looking to, to hire what they called a head of the financial instrument strategy for ETFs, I said, don't you want an ETF expert? And he said, no, we have lots of ETF experts. I want a bond market expert. I want a derivatives market expert. I want somebody who understands the markets that ETFs can provide a better on-ramp to. And um, and so that's what he hired me to do. And now as chief investment officer of the ETF and index business, the role's expanded, it's become more global, um, and, and there are more teams. But fundamentally, ETFs and index are really building blocks that allow for customization at scale for individual investors and institutions to uh, to to you know easily and more efficiently access markets. So as your as ETS market has grown, your role has expanded, right? What has been your outlook on building successful teams, and what do you think is the role of diversity or having women in the team? One of the things I've learned over the past uh, uh, several years is how much intentionality can be brought to building a high performing team. And, and this is where actually my theater background uh, really comes into play. And I remember some of the lessons learned in theater. And I should say, I was never an actor. I was a backstage person, set design, costume design, um, and most of all, directing. I did a lot of directing at Penn. And what you learn as a director are two very important lessons that really apply to business. The first is that casting is 95% of directing, putting the right person in the right role the same is true in business, right? Finding the right person for the right job, that's when magic really happens. The other lesson in theater is the magic of the ensemble cast. 
and how to make a cast of actors come together and work well together, which requires that you build trust and you create a safe space where people aren't scared of, you know, if you fall down on stage or something embarrassing happens, your castmates are there to, you know, have your back and, and you know, uh, uh, support you. Same is true for teams at work. And I don't think I really realized the power of that until more, more recent years. But for me, as I was given more responsibility, unless you can bring people together to work together, you can never succeed with more responsibility because you simply can't do it all yourself. And when you realize the power of inspiring, you know, groups to work together towards a common goal, then you can have the sort of scaled impact that that lets you take on more responsibilities. But but it's interesting because I guess as I talk it through with you, maybe it sounds obvious, but the fact that there's work that you can do, like bringing in coaches, like, you know, um, researching team building exercises, actually blocking out time to talk about things that aren't transactional, but are about what is our operating model as a team? What do we want our social contract to be? Like that type of work might have felt fluffy to me 10 years ago. And now I realize it actually can be the heart of what makes a team successful. That is so fascinating because I remember someone told me that effective delegation is also a skill that you can learn. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's a really hard thing because I suppose there are a some set of people who are natural leaders and delegators, right? My hypothesis would be that it's a relatively small set of people that many other people elevate in their jobs and their careers by being domain experts. You're really good at something, you're given more to do. But if you're a domain expert, one of the hardest things to do is to trust somebody with work that you probably could do better. But until you trust them with that work, you don't give them the chance to make the mistakes that you might have made earlier in your career to get better themselves. And so your job as a delegator sometimes is to both step away and scaffold so that you push people, you know, and, you know, when and you're there to help and, and support on the way. And sometimes it might take a little bit longer for something to get done. And, and those sorts of, you know, uh, it, it's a tension. And I see it often uh, with people who, who, again, are domain experts in their field. And, and I think that's one of the, the biggest blockers sometimes for, for people to, to elevate and, and grow is, is, as you said, building that muscle of, of effective delegation. That makes sense. Switching back to BlackRock ETFs, right? Who are the biggest set of investors in the ETFs? Are they retail investors? Are they small businesses? Or are they hedge funds? All of the above. All of the above is the answer. Now, I think, um, and, and I'll tell you uh, a, a couple of stats, the, the numbers that I'm, that I'm incredibly proud of, because at, at BlackRock, the reason I say all of the above is, is we really run the most uh, accessible and the most inclusive, I would say, uh, investment platform in the world. We have about, there are about 120 million people in the world who are accessing our ETF and index capabilities. In ETFs, those are hedge funds who use ETFs as, as trading vehicles, businesses who use um, ETFs uh, for, uh, you know, managing their, you know, cash um, and, and other uses like that. And lots of individuals. Retail is a really important dynamic in the market right now. 
And for me, I think it's really important uh, for, for us to start to break down what we mean by retail. Because retail is both, you know, I think generally when we say retail, we're talking about individual investors. There are individual investors, though, who uh, uh, whose uh, investments are what we call advised. And they are, you know, advised through, um, you know, financial advisors, through banks, through, you know, uh, uh, um, entities that, that act more institutional in the market because they aggregate up all of these individual investor flows. Then we have this other dynamic that is self-directed investors. So if I look at the pie of uh, ETFs that are uh, held by individual investors, and ultimately, probably, let's call it three quarters of ETFs in the United States are held by individual investors, the bigger portion of that is advised, but the faster portion of the faster growing portion of that is self-directed through tools and technology that now make it much easier for an individual investor on their phone to, you know, trade an individual stock or trade an ETF. Um, and, and that is a, a segment that, that I'm super interested in watching and, and have been really for the last few years when, when uh, trading platforms went commission-free in 2019, kind of combined with the pandemic lockdown and people getting better at technology and having time on their hands, combined, frankly, with stimulus checks in 2020, we saw a real um, explosion of participation in markets by the self-directed investor. Now, a myth actually about the self-directed investor is that they only uh, want to trade meme stocks and crypto, um, but actually probably half of the uh, um, uh, most purchased stocks by uh, self-directed investors last year were ETFs, were um, index funds, diversified strategies that, uh, that they achieved through exchange-traded funds. That's fascinating. So sort of like a follow-on to that is, how have the returns been for ETFs like year to date? And are there certain strategies that investors, specifically retail investors, have preferred more? Yeah. So um, importantly, ETFs really represent world markets. So returns for ETFs, ETFs are a technology. It's easiest to think of ETFs as a technology delivering markets and strategies and not an asset class themselves. So, you know, as we saw in 2022, all markets were down. So uh, equity ETFs were down, fixed income ETFs were down. It was, you know, a real historical moment in markets that we saw negative returns in both. Um, and what we have seen um, over the course of the beginning of this year is a real focus on fixed income ETFs and accessing the bond market. Because now, unlike the period that really characterized the last couple of decades, there are interest rates again and yields on fixed income securities. And there is an entire generation of investors that kind of grew up thinking fixed income was really uh, only well-placed in their grandparents' portfolios that now have much more of a, a value proposition for uh, fixed income in their own portfolios. So um, particularly at the beginning of, of 23, uh, there has been a lot of interest in, in you know, short duration cash-like ETFs, but it is really the bond market access story that has been um, uh, the driver, I would say, for, for the last 18 months. Investors added almost 100 billion of fixed income ETFs in, in 2022, and trading volumes of fixed income ETFs 
really surged. And so that has been, you know, the biggest theme and one I think will characterize uh, uh, the years ahead. And out of all the ETS provided in the market, what sets BlackRock apart? Are there certain risk management protocols or rebalancing protocols that you follow which exceed market standards? Yeah, I think that um, there's a bunch of things that that you know investors need to consider that that set ETS apart, and I think set our ETS apart. And the first one is, you know, uh, uh, the breadth of of product selection. So we were talking about fixed income ETFs, and so. You know, what, what are those ETFs? Looking through, what are the holdings? Um, we have ETFs across the spectrum of durations and maturities, across the credit spectrum, and around the world with different countries, whether it's, you know, uh, European bonds, U.S. bonds, treasuries, credit, et cetera. So breadth of product selection is one, you know, uh, uh, really important uh, consideration for investors in, in looking at their ETFs. And then the other two aspects of, of ETFs are, are, you know, the, the E and the ETF. What, you know, the exchange tradability. How much does it trade on exchange? What are the transaction costs on exchange? What are the volumes? We call that market quality. So market quality of an ETF is a differentiator. And the last is precision, which is kind of a nerdy sounding term. But what it really means is, does the ETF deliver what it says it will? And with a simple type of ETF, like an S&P 500 ETF, that's a relatively straightforward task. But as we get more complex, particularly going into emerging markets or what we call alt-weighted strategies, like factor strategies, um, the portfolio management of those ETFs in line with the index methodology becomes more challenging. So having the capabilities to really deliver what the ETF says is, is that precision element of, of performance. So when I'm a retail investor, I'm looking to invest in ETFs or invest in the market, wealth building over a long period of time, right? And I'm not asking for investment advice per se, but generally, how should I think about it, especially because now that access is a lot more democratized, as you said, right, be it through apps, right, or be it through more widespread awareness about these, these concepts or these assets. How do I think about allocating or balancing my portfolio in such a manner that optimizes returns for the long term? I love that question. It's it's interesting. I, I find myself uh, wishing that my my 16-year-old son had asked me that question because he has gotten interested in the markets and I'm trying to move him away from uh, thinking about single stocks and into thinking about portfolio construction. But I think the, um, you know, t- the answer to that is it's, it's very personal in terms of articulating what is your risk tolerance, what is your time horizon, what are your needs for cash, um, and then and then you have a number of choices. You can uh, construct a portfolio using ETFs. You can construct it yourself. You can go. There's lots of technology platforms that will allow you to do that. Um, you can get advice, and you can get advice from a financial advisor, or you can get advice from a lot of digital platforms. And kind of the the you know robo advising that's available right now helps investors think about um, how they can meet those those kind of risk and time horizon characteristics with with lots of different um, ETFs. And you can also use active funds. And and I should say just you know just because I'm the, the chief investment officer of an ETF and index business. Um, doesn't mean I think a portfolio should should only be constructed with ETFs and index. There's actually lots of active asset managers who use ETFs as part of their strategies. And I am married to another Penn graduate who is a uh, hedge fund uh, um, manager 
who is who is an active manager. And so I think as an investor, determining um, how much uh, how active you want to be in your portfolio allocation and then what your risk tolerance is, that helps you decide, do you want to build a portfolio of ETFs and rebalance it yourselves? Do you want somebody else to be responsible for that portfolio and rebalance it for you? And do you want to consider um, active strategies? And if you do, it's very possible that your active manager uh, is using ETFs uh, in, in their portfolio. Right. I never thought about that, actually, that ETFs, I always think they're more like a passive instrument, but it turns out that they are not really, right? I'm so happy you said that. That is correct. And I would love uh, to just get rid of the word passive uh, in the conversation about ETFs and index because there is really nothing passive about how we manage our ETF and index book. And even more importantly, there's really nothing passive about the decision an investor makes to employ an ETF or an index strategy um, in, in their portfolio. And one of the biggest adopters of ETFs over the past couple of years has actually been um, active asset managers who might use ETFs in lieu of any other market access vehicle, like an index future or a swap, to get their core beta exposures so they can spend their um, uh, really capital and and attention on their highest uh, conviction alpha-seeking ideas. And you may touched upon robo-advisors, you touched upon fractional investing. What are some fintech innovations within the investing world that you think are really going to, you know, if not transform that key role in the next couple of years, let's say two to three years in not just driving retail investment into the industry, but also just educating people more about these assets? I think, first of all, uh, I look at ETFs themselves as a fintech innovation that has created better access to markets. Because of the ETF, individual investors who, for example, wouldn't have had uh, uh, enough capital to diversify their investments across international emerging market equities or high yield bonds now can participate in those markets with much less cost and capital commitment. So that's really important um, FinTech development, number one. Now, thinking about where we are today, what the future looks like, um, I'm pretty fascinated right now, as is much of the world, by the potential for, um, for AI and what that means in the financial education space. Because one of the biggest challenges for individual investors, now that they have so much technology and access, is education. What do they do and how do they inform themselves? And they are overwhelmed with sources of information and advertisement. And for me, one of the really promising applications of of AI and chat GPT type applications is the ability to aggregate lots of information in a very customized way for an individual investor. So being able to ask the question that you asked me how should I construct a portfolio? This is my time horizon. This is my you know, risk tolerance. Um, there are potentially um, really interesting improved solutions to help you navigate your journey using um, ETF and other market building blocks that technology innovation has made accessible to you. And before I move to the next segment, my question is, 
what are some goals or your vision for BlackRock's ETF business that you have set over the next five to 10 years? Are there certain success metrics, be it in terms of AUM or number of, you know, investors or like rather retail investors involved in the ETFs? Like, are there certain metrics that you look at and you want to achieve over the next five, 10 years? There's a lot of metrics, Um, you know, returning to our purpose, helping more and more people achieve financial well-being, coming up with the best product set that helps create the best outcomes for lots of different types of strategy. That's really how we measure our success. We have 120 million people around the world accessing our ETF and index capabilities. About 30 million of those are in iShares ETFs. We'd like more and more people to be accessing the market. So we're after the next 100 million investors. Um, And that's goal number one, the number of investors actually participating in markets and participating in economic growth through our platform. Goal number two is um, when I look at underpenetrated markets and asset classes that are really important to investors right now, we have to look at the bond market. And as we were talking about before, the bond market, you know, really didn't have to play as significant a part of people's portfolios for the past 30 years that it will for the next, you know, 10, 20 years. Now, the global bond market is probably approximately $100 trillion. The global equity market, call it 30 or 40 trillion. ETFs are about 10% of the global equity market, but only one and a half percent of the global bond market. So I think that, you know, there will be a step function of increased penetration of the bond market by by ETFs. Um, And that actually will um, have a a really positive effect on on investors and also a modernizing effect on the bond market itself, because ETFs bring transparency uh, to markets where they trade. For the next segment, what I'd like to do is introduce you as a person to our listeners. And I have some rapid fire questions lined up for you. My first question is, what is the fun fact about you that most people don't know? I am a uh, uh, collector of adventure travel memories. Uh, Somebody once asked me, do you collect anything? And I thought about it and I realized, no, I don't really have any hobbies and I don't collect anything. And then I realized, no, I, I do. I collect adventure travel memories. And this is a passion my husband and I share. We have From the time we first met, shortly after we started dating, we went on a hiking trip to Bhutan together. Um, And we love love adventure. We love uh, mountains and hiking and and wildlife. We've hiked with polar bears in the Arctic. We are going to Borneo this summer to to hike with orangutan. We've seen gorillas in Rwanda. Um, It's it's a huge passion. And uh, and, and yeah, I think... uh, Probably people wouldn't guess that from a city girl like me. Uh, I know this is this is tough, but is there one particular hike you would recommend everyone to do if you could? One particular hike? There isn't. I think being in nature is is really powerful. And, and I think doing a hike wherever you are is something I would recommend everybody do. And you don't necessarily have to travel. Even in New York City, uh, in in Central Park, there are some some beautiful mini hikes to do. So I would recommend. I was a city girl when I went on my first hiking trip. My parents thought it was hilarious. My mother said, "Your idea of nature is clear nail polish." <laughs> and then I went on this hiking trip, and I loved it. 
And this was a couple of years after I started at BlackRock. So, you know, more than 25 years ago. And now it's it's a huge passion. And I wouldn't have done it if I, I hadn't. Some, somebody said, you should do this once. So any hype just once, I would recommend for everybody. My next question is about another life-altering experience I would say that you faced was cancer. You had cancer, you fought and you won. How did that impact your outlook on your professional and personal life? It impacted both of them. I wouldn't wish it on anybody, of course, um, but but there's a silver lining to going through any sort of experience. And as you said, really, really getting to the other side of it. And, and for me on the personal side, I would say it's feeling my health. And what I mean by that is that until I got sick and I was treated for lymphoma while I was at business school with um, six months of uh, chemotherapy and radiation therapy, before then, you know, healthy, just felt normal. I didn't really notice it. And, um, and then when you go through treatments where you feel really terrible, um, after that, what had felt just normal to me that I didn't notice felt good. And I don't take my health for granted and, and never will. But that is the silver lining to actually, you know, have a feeling of, of good health and to have gratitude for that which amazingly, 25 years later, I, I still feel um, every day. So that is a huge um, you know, personal impact that, that I've taken away in a positive way. And in a professional way, I, uh, I had just, when I was diagnosed, I had just accepted my job from Goldman. And I wasn't sure whether I should tell people at Goldman because maybe it would make me look weak. And what if I couldn't start on time? And, and I struggled with it. And I ended up deciding to, to tell them what I was going through. And the firm was terrifically supportive. Um, but I was quite scared. And, and I remember somebody on the trading floor reached out to me and told me that she had had the same diagnosis as me and hadn't told anybody and had actually gone through treatments while coming into the trading floor. And and I, I thought that must have been such a struggle for her. And so I really committed to trying to make uh, others who were going through cancer treatments feel comfortable and open talking about it, which some people don't want to do, but many people do, and, and they're scared to do it. And, and for me, that's a dimension we talk about all the time, bringing your, your whole self to work. And Careers are, are marathons, and over a long period of time, life happens, whether it's your health or a family member's health. And so um, trying to, to create the space, you know, like we talked about with, with building high-performing teams, a safe space for people to talk about what they're going through, I try to do that um, in lots of different ways. But, you know, I have a colleague now who's, who's going through breast cancer treatments and, and having her feel like she has support and she can talk about it um, is is something that I think is is really uh, important in in work, and then of course after treatment, um, being a, a survivor of cancer carries a lot of um, ramifications with it too. So so being a, a champion both for people going through treatments and and survivors of treatments, um, I I try to be that uh, uh, at work every day. And yeah, you mentioned that you feel your health more now. Do you also find yourself like using a more of the health tech? Devices available now, for example, your Apple Watch or some other fitness tracker, maybe going into checkups a lot more frequently. Um, well, yes, I don't know if that's related to having cancer, but I am a health, like I, I, I love uh, uh, 
feeling my health and I, and I'm very focused on, on taking care of my health. It, it makes me feel better. It makes me perform better. And I am a data junkie and I like numbers. So I have an Apple watch. I have an aura ring. I have the Peloton app. I have other apps. So, um, and I work a pretty crazy schedule. I get up before am. I walk my dog. I work out at 5 a.m. So FinTech is that not FinTech, uh, uh, exercise tech, I guess. Oh, there must be a better name for it. Um, has actually been a great uh, development in in my own life to to you know keep me uh, keep me healthy and and uh, and seeing what's going on. I don't go. I don't know that I go in for checkups more often, but I am very good about going in for my checkups. And, and whether or not you've had cancer, that's something everybody should do. And since we are on the Penn campus, what advice would you give to maybe an undergrad or an MBA looking to build a career in investment management? Uh, Take advantage of, of the opportunities you have being at Penn to, to meet people and, and to learn about it. Um, there is such a, a I, I'm reminded being back here and, and having the opportunity to, to spend time with, with a, a really broad range of people, how the exposure can, can educate you on, on what's out there. And, uh, and don't be shy about asking questions of people. I think the uh, now I do sometimes get emails from people who went to Penn who who you know reach out to me and say uh, I'm interested in the industry can we talk about it and I would say um, before sending emails like that I definitely would advise doing some research because there's a huge amount of information available so if you reach out and say oh I listened to your podcast and I'm interested in this topic or I researched your company um, so so doing the research and and having some um, specificity to your questions, I think, is a is a good idea. But um, it's really, um, you know, reaching out and, and ask. I, I can't say it often enough. I think it's asking questions. If I were to go back and and give myself some advice, it would be: don't be scared of asking questions you think are dumb questions because they probably aren't. But um, but sometimes, especially in a place like Penn and a place like Wharton, where it sounds like everybody's an expert. If you aren't familiar with the industry, you can be intimidated by those who talk the talk. Don't be. If you're interested, my advice is to, you know, do the research and ask your questions. And since you mentioned, like, if you could go back in time, I know you already mentioned, like, how dots connected and everything worked out quite well. But is there anything that you would change about your career if you could go back in time? I'm really happy with how the dots have connected in, in my story and my career. But I will say one thing I will do differently, or I would do differently. And, and I'm inspired today being here, being reminded of the, the classes that I took and, and the teachers that I've had. Um, I think the one thing I would do differently is I would write letters to the teachers who had the biggest impact on me. Even in this conversation, we talked about, you know, my costume design teacher, my financial engineering teacher. Um, and, and I've had mentors and teachers on the job, managers who've taught me some of these things we've talked about with teams, writing letters to, I don't know, the 10 people, the 20 people, maybe probably more at this point who've had that sort of impact on me and my career. I would um, tell myself to write those letters and to send those letters. Um, and again, being here on campus, I've been thinking that's uh, that's something that that I want to do even now, just to to thank the uh, the teachers who made such a big difference in my life. On that note, I'll let you go back to enjoying the campus. But thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Vault in FinTech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor Rafael Ostiria. Signing off until next time. I'm your host Tarang Gupta. Thank you.